Hello, you've tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. I'm Karen Serrano, and this is The Graduates, an interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work on campus and beyond. I'm joined by Kaylee Ferger today from the Center of Computational Biology. Welcome to the show, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. So Kaylee, tell us a little bit about the research you conduct on campus. So I'm a graduate student in the Center for Computational Biology. So I, my work is entirely computational. I don't do any wet lab research. And so what that means for a PhD is essentially designing pipelines or designing software or doing data analysis with various different like programming languages. And so at the end of my PhD, I hope to eventually either create some software or design pipeline that other computational biologists can implement for their own data. And so I guess I'll tell you a little bit about like specifically what I do. So I work with human genetics. So I look at human genomes from populations across the world. Specifically, I am looking at two kind of different spheres of human populations, the first being modern day um, Europeans, and the second being South Asian populations and like Native American populations. For the part where I'm analyzing um, like Eurasian populations, um, like modern day, I'm specifically um, investigating the effects of archaic admixture in those populations. So what that means is many, many thousands of years ago, humans lived on earth with other ancient hominins, including Neanderthals and Denisovan hominins, as well as potentially other hominins as well. Of course, they're extinct now, but there has been a lot of evidence in the past decade, probably, that humans actually um, kind of like mixed with the Neanderthal population and um, I guess like had children with Neanderthals and Denisovan populations. And so even today, there's still signatures in our own genomes of these archaic hominins, um, their genomes and our own genomes. So um, a large portion of my project focuses on identifying um, these segments along all of the genomes and kind of characterizing how that like the archaic um, genome, genomic content that kind of remains in our own genomes um, has kind of affected the way we evolved and affected how we moved and um, affected the way that selection acts on our genomes. So I'm characterizing kind of the distribution of archaic um, genomic segments in the genome and also looking at how natural selection um, has selected some of some of the variants that were um, kind of mixed into our own genomes. So I'm specifically developing a computational method right now um, that will let us do just that. So essentially like if we're able to identify where these archaic segments are in our own genomes, um, hopefully once we identify where they are, we can also um, start to look at how natural selection is acting on these segments. So I hope to identify um, various like genes that are actually um, Neanderthal origin or Denisovan origin um, and see kind of like when, how, how these genes uh, have been selected throughout history and what populations kind of how, like what advantages they confer in the population um, and kind of just further characterizing archaic genomics. Um, Great. Wow. That's super <laughs> cool and interesting and also something I know nothing about. Um, I have a few questions. Yeah. First of all, 
how how do you obtain this like ancient DNA? Do you have samples that you maybe like collect from museums or how? Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do you like? Yeah, where it's, are you getting these genomes from basically? Right. So it's cool because we're actually able to leverage modern um, human data. So basically, we're just using. Um, so we there's various models that exist um, today that are able to like infer these tiny little bits of archaic segments in modern human genomes. So most Asian and European human populations still have kind of these signatures across their whole genome of um, these archaic genomes that at one time were highly prevalent at the time of the admixture event that occurred. So we can kind of leverage all of these different human genetic databases around the world. Like for example, Thousand Genomes Project, which aims to capture, uh, I think human genomes from Asia, Europe, America, South Asia, and maybe Oceania. Um, and then I'm also using a really cool database that actually just came out. So a bunch of new sequences from East Asia, Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, in areas like that. And so that part I'm actually really excited about because many of these populations have not been studied extensively at all, just because I think sampling in these areas has been really scarce. And like a lot of funding has been allocated towards kind of European and Asian populations. And a lot of the major universities are located there. And, um, and a lot of interest has been in there, especially in like genomic medicine and things like that. Um, so a lot of other populations like in South Asia especially have not even been closely looked at. So I'm looking at kind of populations from India, um, populations in Southeast Asia and some like Oceanian populations too. So that's kind of um, gonna be like the novel aspect of my analysis in those areas. That's really cool. Um, so I'm not a computational biologist, so I don't know many things about you know, the programs that you're using, um, how do you recognize like these stretches of ancient DNA in our genomes? Is it like you, are you mapping it back to a known ancient DNA sequence or how does that work? That's a really good question. So there are several ways to do this. And one of them is doing just that where essentially you're taking a reference genome from one of the hominid species that we've been able to actually sequence to high coverage um, just because uh, scientists have been working a really long time at it and really um, been careful in preserving the remains that we found. Um, and so you could match um, the segments in a genome back to that reference. But I'm actually using a method that is reference free. Um, and so it involves essentially using what's called a hidden Markov model, which is essentially it's just a kind of machine learning algorithm. Um, and it basically just uses like it leverages private variation that's found in the genome. So if you can imagine a human genome and an archaic hominid genome is gonna have a lot more um, like genetic differences across the whole genome compared to like a human pop or a human individual from a European population compared to like an American individual or something or like a Native American individual. You're just gonna have a lot more fixed differences between an archaic genome. Um, and so essentially that algorithm is leveraging a lot of those fixed differences in the population. Um, and what I mean by fixed differences is, um, so we all have kind of like that four letter code that defines our whole genome. Um, and humans are actually extremely consistent. Um, there really isn't as much variation among populations as you might think. Um, but compared to an archaic genome, there's a lot more differences. And so, yeah, this, this algorithm essentially just leverages a lot of those differences. Um, and then it um, basically just uses the idea that 
if you if you <laughs> input like a human genome uh, into the algorithm, it basically just uh, scans along the genome and uses kind of a reference human population um, and then calculates the probability that a, a very like a certain segment is human or archaic based on how different it is from like a human reference genome or another human individual or, or something. Um, I think I'm following. So basically this algorithm can compare how different two genomes are to each other. And if it's more different than two human genomes, it will assume that it's actually hominid yes. DNA. Okay, so great, yeah. yeah, the thing about that is it can't really identify what hominid it is. And that's kind of where my project comes in mm -hmm. a little bit more, um, but it can identify that it's probably not human given um, other genomes that you feed in and the reference genome and, and things like that, so. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I might ask like a silly question because sure. I probably read too much sci-fi, but I've heard that like certain people with more like Neanderthal DNA mm -hmm. have like certain personality traits. Is there any like validity to that at all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I won't cast anything out of the realm of possibility <laughs> just because um, we're discovering more and more about archaic um, genetics. And the truth is that we don't really know. I would say it's probably unlikely um, just because there is only around 2% of our genome is um, Neanderthal. And of course, 2% total of our genome is coding. And so the chance that a coding part of our genome will be uh, Neanderthal or Denisovan or some other archaic is very minuscule. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still doing research and a lot is still unknown. Like we have discovered various genes that are selected that are confirmed to be um, Neanderthal derived or Denisovan derived. Um, and we're able to characterize kind of uh, the selective event and why it was selected and what advantage it confers in the population and things like that. But um, yeah, I guess, I guess that remains to be seen. <laughs> That's a funny question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I keep seeing articles like, I don't know, like if you have more Neanderthal DNA, you're like more aggressive or something. <laughs> I, I'm sure they're false, but I don't know. There's actual science behind that. Yeah, I, I think another point to bring up too is that um, the relative amount of variation that people across the world have in terms of the amount of archaic ancestry is also very small. So it's within the range of a single percentage. Wow, so okay. um, I'd say the the populations with the most um, archaic DNA is like the Oceanian population. So like New Zealand, Australia, and the Pacific Islands. Um, and then across Europe, Asia, even America, we all have around 2%, maybe, maybe a little over. So, um, so we're all pretty similar. Right. I'd <laughs> okay. say we're pretty similar on that front. So there isn't going to be an individual you meet that has drastically more and maybe right. it has noticeable effect. Um, what kind of genes or I don't know if you've gone to this part of the project, but um, what kind of genes have been conserved from? Neanderthal? Yeah, yeah. So um, surprisingly, there's a lot of um, like immune system functions oh, that have been selected. Yeah, um, so that's, that's one category. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, like fertility genes are not selected at all. And that's like actually a surprising result. Um, so there's like a complete desert in the whole, all of the sex chromosomes basically of um, archaic ancestry. 
And so I thought, I think that's kind of interesting. We, we don't really know what that means yet, but definitely um, some immune functions have been selected. And there's a really cool example actually um, in the Tibetan population. So there's individuals living on the Tibetan plateau, which means they live at very high altitude. Um, but genetically, they're very similar to um, Chinese populations in the surrounding area. Um, with one large exception, which is they actually have a gene um, that was conferred by Denisovans actually um, in their genomes. And this gene allows them to be adapted to high altitudes. So if, you ever, if you've ever been kind of in a really high altitude area for a long time, you probably know that you get start to get altitude sickness or high altitude sickness. So um, I think your, your breathing shortens like you're blood doesn't flow as well and it's just not good for you, you become very ill. Um, but individuals who live kind of in Tibet and at this very high altitude actually have an adaptation um, where they don't experience hypoxia, which is what you experience when you are, are really high up for a long time. Um, and they basically have a mutation um, on this gene that was conferred from Denisovans where um, it, it modifies, I believe, some structure in their red blood cells so they aren't um, susceptible to kind of hypoxic conditions. So I think that's a really cool example of kind of a really like unique, wow. um, yeah, signal that that's we were really able crazy. to find. Yeah. Um, and that was probably, and I'm just kind of guessing here, that was probably so conserved in that population because it's so like isolated from other populations, right? So they're living up in these mountains that's kind of like separating their yeah. and stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they don't have a ton of like mixture with other populations. And so we were able to characterize this signal really well. And that's why it's so well conserved in this population too. Wow, yeah. that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So besides this project that you're working on, is are there any like smaller projects that you're interested in as well? Yeah, yeah. So the main portion of the project I've just described was essentially developing this method that scans the genome for selection on um, like these uh, kind of segments that were conferred to these individuals through gene flow. Um, and so once I developed that method and it, we tested and it works really well in the conditions of like archaic introgression, we're hoping to apply it to various different populations that are relatively understudied. Um, and so populations like Native American populations um, across North and South America, as well as a lot of populations in South Asia, um, like populations in India and Malaysia and um, kind of places like that. Um, and so a lot of these populations, kind of the reason they have been pretty understudied other than the fact that there hasn't been a ton of kind of like funding for sampling in this area, um, but they also are genetically really complicated um, because European and kind of a lot of Asian populations are relatively homogenous um, from a genetic perspective, meaning just that they um, their genomes are all pretty similar in their kind of own groups. But the cases of um, like South Asian populations and smaller populations, um, they have kind of uh, signatures of recent um, like population mixture events. So when populations kind of uh, come together and merge and start to like mix with each other and start to have children and create this admixed population, it makes your genome actually really difficult to study. Um, and this is because you basically have this kind of, if you can imagine this mosaic of different ancestry blocks across your whole genome. 
Um, and this is because every, every generation when you reproduce, you kind of get this recombination event in your chromosomes. It's probably getting in the weeds, but <laughs> you kind of get these, this recombination event um, every generation in your chromosomes, which just kind of breaks up all of these ancestral blocks in your genome. And so you end up with kind of this huge mosaic of, of ancestry. And so kind of it, it muddles a lot of signals and it makes it really hard to study selection in these populations and to kind of delve in and um, kind of analyze these populations to the same level as you can a more homogenous like European population or something. And so kind of the main goal of the method that I'm trying to develop is to try to overcome a lot of the challenges that come with um, populations being of smaller size or um, populations that have recently mixed with other populations um, and just kind of um, different populations that have more complicated genomes essentially to study. Um, and so basically I don't have to get into the details, but um, that's the part of the project I'm really excited about is the fact that once we kind of have this method that's really robust to a lot of these different conditions that make genomes really complicated, we can kind of apply this method across the world and discover some really cool things about populations that have really just never been studied before. Um, and this is really relevant to like genomic medicine or disease association studies and things like that. So a lot of disease associations and medicine based on genomics are based on like European populations, some Asian, but mostly European populations. But um, when you apply a lot of these methods um, and things that were designed for these populations, uh, they're actually pretty inapplicable to other populations that aren't European. And in some cases, they might even be dangerous to implement in populations of non-European origin. And so kind of like the overarching hope of my project is to kind of open the door to, to easier investigation of some of these other worldwide populations that um, typically haven't really been studied from like a medical perspective either. Wow, that's really cool. And something I, yeah, something that I rarely think about. That's also like an area that isn't really often considered in these studies, um, the applicability of it across different populations, especially in medicine, because I know that there's a lot of diseases that vary depending on your background. And so I think it's really important to have, yeah, to have information about the genomes of different populations as well as Eurasian Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I honestly think it's pretty surprising that we haven't gotten to that point yet. You know, we've been doing precision medicine for a very long time. Um, and we've kind of been designing various treatments based off of genomic information for a very long time. Um, but it's still, you know, the vast majority is just using um, European like variants and kind of genotyping data and things like that. Um, but these can vary so widely, like you said. And so it's, it's really important to kind of have accurate um, information about kind of the individual you're treating, especially their genetic background and their genetic history. Um, yeah, so, yeah. That's great. So what made you want to study this in the first place? Yeah, so um, when I was an undergrad, I knew that I, I kind of fell into the field of computational biology. Um, I kind of went to a seminar and uh, kind of about the field and about um, the major that was offered at my undergrad, uh, the computational biology major. And I kind of just like, quickly realized that that was the path for me. Um, it kind of had biology, which I loved, but it also had this aspect of like um, 
like problem solving on the scale of a few hours or days, in the sense that you can run an experiment computationally um, really quickly and kind of problem solve and come up with a new pipeline or solution. Um, and it's kind of very fast paced like that. So I knew kind of um, that was the field I wanted to pursue. And then I took a few courses um, kind of about one was called molecular evolution. Um, and it kind of got me into the field of population genetics because it was essentially all of kind of um, like the underlying math for um, how we can infer different things about populations using their genome. So um, kind of inferring different parameters about populations and kind of um, different statistics you can use to infer uh, how populations have moved and you know um, what their size was and um, how similar two populations are to one another. And it kind of like really just captured my imagination how you can um, just use a couple of simple mathematical ideas and kind of uh, infer all of these really cool things about populations just using, um, you know, information you can gather from a genome just for little base pairs or bases, I guess, DNA bases. Um, but yeah, so that kind of um, triggered my interest in population genetics. And then I took another course with the same professor about specifically human population genetics um, and about our history with archaic hominins. And so I kind of really just thought that was a super cool area of research. I didn't know a ton about archaic hominins. And um, it just, I think the idea of trying to paint our history back from, you know, our, our dawn of civilization and kind of like where we came from and um, how we've moved throughout time and kind of being able to use genetics to paint this picture of um, who we are and where we came from and kind of why we are the way we are today. I, I kind of was looking at various different like grad programs and I found my advisor really early on, um, even before I uh, decided to move or apply to Berkeley because she specializes in kind of this idea of like human evolutionary genetics. Um, and so I... I did, yeah, I think I reached out to her um, and I applied to Berkeley in an interview with her and I was kind of pretty immediately sold on um, working kind of on problems that she was doing with human evolution and kind of ancient human genetics. Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds like you had a really clear idea of what you wanted to study and you found someone who studied that exact thing. So that's <laughs> a really, really lucky situation. Yeah, you. yeah. I mean, I was kind of, I, I came to grad school a little open to other avenues just in case it kind of wasn't all it was cracked up to be. I hadn't really had experience in research doing that particular thing yet. Um, so I, I shopped around, but I ended up just um, picking that avenue because I really loved it once I tried it. That's awesome. Yeah. Were you involved in any other kind of research as an undergraduate before Berkeley? Yeah, it's funny. I actually, I did three years of research on snails in undergrad. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, yeah. So our, our lab was a, like a marine lab um, and we we did snail genetics. So Wow, very different from humans, I <laughs> yes. assume. Yeah, so I basically, I was the computational biologist of the lab. I was essentially the only one running like computational analyses, but I joined that lab for that very purpose because I wanted some experience doing computational stuff um, in a research setting. And so I basically um, was running a lot of like, like genetic analyses on this, like the DNA of snails and um, specifically like looking at gene expression um, during different stages of snail development. Um, and we don't have to get too into it. Wow, no, but I'm kind of interested. <laughs> um, 
what are the stages of snail development? Yeah, there's, I think there's, I should know this better, but I think there's like five or six different distinct developmental stages of the snail we were looking at, mm -hmm. um, Ilinasa obsolita. And so I was looking at kind of the patterns of gene expression throughout their development. So um, it's actually interesting because like mollusk organisms, so like a lot of snail organisms and like spiral, spiralian organisms have a really set and distinct pattern of how they develop with respect to what genes are expressed during that development. And so we were looking in our organism to kind of look to see how the expression patterns compared to like this very well-known kind of theory of development for other spiralians. And we found like very contradictory evidence of kind of the expression patterns of our, our little snails. That was kind of a cool project because um, I got to take the lead on, on some of the computational analyses. And it was kind of cool because we found some contradictory evidence to a theory that we, I guess, other um, evolutionary biologists kind of thought was, what's the word for like standard present everywhere yeah, yeah very standard that's um, so in that cool. area yeah that's the thing I love about research it's like you can apply the same method to study human populations or a very specific kind of snail yeah it's pretty much just a genomic analysis a lot of the tools work the same way so yeah it's it's definitely really cool what about your plans for the future what do you want to do after you graduate yeah um so our program, like my program specifically, is actually pretty new. I think we only have, like, I think we have under 10 <laughs> graduates so far, and most of them have actually gone into, like, biotech industry, mm. which is, I think, where um, I also will end up. I, I've never really envisioned, um, like, leading a lab myself, um, and I kind of really like the, the flexibility of an industry position and kind of in terms of like geography and what I might be doing and kind of um, like as, as well as like the stability that comes with um, just, you know, working at a company and um, being paid a set amount instead of having to always apply for grants and um, kind of having that that uncertainty aspect where you would if you were a professor. But I, I haven't really narrowed it down um, as far as kind of what type of biotech. I think maybe I will end up doing some sort of um, like genetics based biotech company. So think like 23andMe or Ancestry. Um, actually quite a, uh, several of the graduates of the program have gone on to both of those companies and they're working kind of in the R&D uh, realms of those companies. But I haven't given it a ton of thought other than I know I'm pretty industry oriented already. Nice. Well, so you have a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, I think to, I think eventually I'll probably out. like intern somewhere to kind of solidify what type of research I want to end up doing and then kind of decide from there. But it's pretty open ended as far as um, kind of what I want right now. Nice. I'm glad that you brought up those kind of those kind of companies like 23andMe because I had a question earlier that I forgot to ask. So whenever you sign up, you know, to get your genome sequenced by those companies, could that information then be used with the project that you're developing? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, technically, yes. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of privacy. Yes, <laughs> yes. Involved. Um, and also, I I believe that 23andMe and Ancestry doesn't sequence on the entire genome. They just genotype because sequencing is really expensive. And so I think they just narrow down to kind of like gene rich areas of the genome and just do like a genotyping array kind of thing. So, I mean, a lot of the principles still apply where you can kind of um, compare genotype arrays between individuals and kind of compare to a reference, which is essentially what they do. So they have, 
you know, a standard, they, they compare your genome to like all of the quote European genomes that they have in their database and um, to like all their other clients and they're able to kind of infer all of these different things about um, like what your variants say about your ancestry in a certain area of your chromosome or whatever. Um, so I think, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the principles carry over. Of course, there's a ton of privacy um, things going on with that. Uh, but I, uh, I think once you're in 23andMe, yeah, a lot of that stuff is, is definitely possible, um, even with just genotype arrays. Yeah, this might be like a little bit of a tangent, but I know there's a new kind of sequencing company that can basically take your genome and then build a picture of what it predicts you to look like. Oh, have you cool. heard of that? I think I actually have. <laughs> they used it to identify like the Golden State Killer. Okay. I, I guess some one of his family members had submitted their DNA and mm -hmm. like they were like able to compare it to old samples or something. Yeah, yeah, I haven't, I don't know a ton about um, specifically the case where you can predict kind of different phenotypes um, from genomes. Um, I will say, I think some of that is still, like I, I think accurate predictions for some um, physical attributes is still kind of a long ways away um, just because we're learning more and more uh, about just how much your environment affects how you look and your different phenotypes and kind of um, susceptibility to different diseases and all like a whole host of different kind of phenotypic things. And so it will be possible, but I think right now, um, maybe we're still a bit a bit of ways away from that. Right, from getting like a perfect snapshot of mm -hmm. what you look like. So our time is actually coming to a close. Kaylee, it's been so great to have you on here. Is there anything that you would like to leave the audience with? I think I'll just say, if you ever get the chance to, you know, do one of these private ancestry tests, you should absolutely do it. I did one for myself and it's actually really interesting and you might find some things you didn't know about your own past. And so I'd really, I'd really recommend it. And it's, it's kind of a really cool way to just learn about your heritage and, and kind of use the genetics that maybe someday I'll contribute to. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'll definitely have to try out one of those myself because I <laughs> yeah. haven't done one yet. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kaylee. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.